Hi, this is Peter Bogdanovich, and you're listening to Vicki Adelson's The Road Taken. Hi, I'm Vicki Adelson. I wrote a book called Don't Jump. Andy Stone is my heroine, and she was addicted to everything pretty much except heroin. Oh my God, oh yes! She just totally captures the excitement of, of rock stars. And famous athletes and famous comedians. Sort of an insider's view from the outside. The warmth and wit of Vicky's writing knocked me out. In, in a good way, not, not like Cosby. Too soon? Vicky wrote a book? Vicki Abelson's long-awaited new book, Don't Jump, is finally here. Don't miss it. Available on Amazon. Wheezy, John. So you're in the studio. You can see me. I've got right now. I've got like this headphone on my on my head. You do. But normally, like my hair is kind of you know my hair is my thing. My I'm very I'm very my hair is kind of a signature for me. Okay. And I haven't changed my hairdo in about thirty years, maybe more. But anyway, so I'm very attached to this part of me because I think it represents me I think people associate it with me you know it's kind of become a sign that with my feathers especially my feathers in my hair which I started because my hairdresser who is Cindy Wright at Coif Salon in Studio City you know when I was coming out to LA um, a dozen years ago I had a guy in New York that I went to for years and I was really traumatized that I was moving to Los Angeles and I was gonna have to find a new hairdresser and I was pretty freaked out about it because I don't yeah it's, that's your hair is your thing yeah anything yeah. else you know I'll go to yeah but no and actually that's not true I'm loyal to like the same doctor the same anyway so my friend Kathleen Wilhoyt Fabulous actress, fabulous singer. Her. You, Kathleen's fabulous. Yeah. She suggested that I go to Cindy. I loved her hair, and I I was scared. And it was before we moved out here, like six months before, so I could find somebody before. Right? I was like looking for a house and looking for a hairdresser. Those okay. were the two important okay. things. Yeah. So and the schools. It was all about the schools. Well, anyway, so I go to Cindy, and she does my hair the first time, and it's magic. And so now it's twelve years later. Nobody touches my hair, but Cindy Wright at Coif Salon in Studio City. She is phenomenal. She does my highlights because I'm not a natural salt and pepper. No, I, somebody said I had salt and pepper. I don't have gray in my hair. No, it's blonde and whatever other color that is. And there's a lot of that. And it's kind of very stripey and, and kind of not natural looking, which I love. And it's very choppy and, and kind of... It's an event. It's an event. The hair is an event. And Cindy is brilliant every time. And, you know, like I, I look back at pictures and I see that, you know, it's changed minimally, you know, through like, and, you know, each time when I do it, I'm like, oh, I liked it better last time until like two weeks later and then I love it. Anyway, I can't recommend her highly enough. I love, love, love her. So if you are looking for somebody that you can trust, depend on, who's fantastic and who's so much fun, I she's become one of my best friends, go to Cindy Wright at Quaff in Studio City. Welcome to Vicki Abelson's broadcast, The Road Taken, Celebrity Maps to Success. Vicki's the creator and host of the renowned celebrity-driven literary salon, Women Who Write, and the author of Amazon bestseller, Don't Jump. Here's Vicki. Hello out there in cyberland. This is Vicki Abelson for The Road Taken, doing something a little different tonight. Um, this is the first time I'm not in the studio I'm not with my producer, Louise Palanker, and sound engineer, John Maddox. I'm 
out on the road with uh, my friend Stacy Souther, who's going to run sound for me tonight, because we are going to go to the home of Peter Bogdanovich and interview him, um, because when Peter's willing, Peter Bogdanovich says yes, I will do it anywhere, anytime, whatever he says, I'm in. So, yay. Um, Before we get to that, though, um, I wanted to say some thank yous. Um, I have so much gratitude for the people that helped me make this happen. Um, Louise Palanker's been amazing, and um, I've been so enjoying spending having these experiences with her and I'm really going to miss her tonight her input and her laughter and and um, seeing her smiling face across the studio and John's been doing a great job mixing sound and and recording for me and I'm so grateful for that I'm so grateful to DJ Markison who's been doing my banners and working my website and doing all that stuff did a bunch of the shows uh, sound engineered them for me and to Stacy, who tonight is uh, making this possible for, for me uh, to do a remote. So he's got all the equipment and we could actually shoot it and make it a video. But I don't think I'm going to do that tonight. I think there's something different about just listening to someone speak and having a conversation and not feeling like we're being filmed or watched. And I think there's a certain... Um, I don't know, a a spontaneity that happens that doesn't when people are aware that they're being filmed. So especially a filmmaker who'd be thinking of angles and lighting and stuff like that. So I think we're going to go just with the audio and trust that tonight. And I'm really grateful to Stacy for providing the equipment. I wanted to talk a little bit about men appreciating women in all of their greatness. Uh, Peter kind of sparked this thinking in me. Um, because of him, Cloris Leachman won an Oscar, Tatum O'Neill, youngest actress ever to win an Oscar, Cher won a Best Actress Award at Cannes, thanks to Peter, and he brings out the best, and look what he did for Barbara Streisand, I mean, what's up, Doc, amazing. He really celebrates women, he really gets women, he adores women, um, He's had some controversial relationships with women, which I hope we'll talk about tonight. But what mostly impresses me is that he celebrates women in all of their greatness and shows their greatness. And he shows women in their big, real, perfect, wonderful selves. And I'm finding that in real life, it's very interesting uh, as I journey through life to find that If I'm myself, if I'm my biggest self, it often is too much for some men. And um, that's why I'm single for all these years. But it's really been intimidating, I think, to some men that um, if they see me um, at my literary salon, for example, at Women Who Write, and I'm hosting the thing and I'm, you know, being that part of myself, or if I'm on on the air or, um, you know, promoting my book. Um, I And I really appreciate men who are okay with that, who don't feel diminished by a woman being big. And I also want to encourage women out there to, that for us to be our biggest selves and to not be, a, to not fear that it will be too much for someone else. And to know that 
anyone who's worth it is going to be okay with us being all we can be and that any man who isn't like a certain man who has way too much control of this free world right now um but men who celebrate women and appreciate women and are unthreatened by it and know it doesn't diminish them in any way to share the spotlight with a woman or to share the path with a woman yeah yay for those men yay for peter bogdanovich which brings me to tonight's guest Peter Bogdanovich was part of the new wave of the new Hollywood directors, which included William Friedkin, Brian De Palma, George Lucas, Martin Scorsese, Michael Cimino, Francis Ford Coppola. Oh, my God. But Peter started out as an actor himself. He studied with Stellar Adler, and he did the American Shakespeare Festival, the New York uh, Fest, uh, Shakespeare Festival. He did live TV. He did theater around the country. He wrote a series of monographs for the Museum of Modern Art, which I didn't even know what that was. I had to look it up, but a monograph is a book that deals specifically with one personality, and he did three of them, one on Orson Welles, one on Howard Hawks, one on Alfred Hitchcock, and those were the first retrospectives of those gentlemen. Um, he uh, he wrote pieces for Esquire. He did a, 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 a very a groundbreaking piece on Humphrey Bogart, a tribute to him, as well as definitive pieces on James Stewart, Jerry Lewis, and John Ford. He's a fan of celebrity himself um, and celebrates celebrity. Um, his first movie was for Roger Corman. He was his assistant on the hit Wild Angels. And without credit, Peter rewrote most of the script and directed the second the second unit. And within a year, uh, Roger Corman financed Peter's first film as a director, writer, producer, actor, the cult classic Targets, which starred Boris Karloff in his last great film role playing himself. Um, but it's the last picture show which made Peter a rock star that we all came to know and love. Um, he broke Jeff Bridges, Sybil Shepard, Ellen Burstyn, Cloris Leachman, who went on to win a Best uh, Supporting Actress Oscar for that. Um, yeah, Celebrating Women. Oh, hell yes, he does. Peter understands women. Um, he, uh, he won the British Academy Award for Best Screenplay for that. The New York Film Circle, the New York Film Critics Circle Award for Best Screenplay for The Last Picture Show. Um, and also, uh, Ben Johnson also won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for that. Uh, recently, the Library of Congress designated the film as a national treasure, and I think it's pretty safe to say that Peter's a national treasure himself. Um, he went on from there to then make What's Up, Doc? with Barbara Streisand and, and Ryan O'Neill, which is just a fantastic comedy. Love that, which won the Writers Guild Award for the Best uh, Screenplay. Um, he wrote it with Buck Henry, David Newman, and Bob Benton. A year later, he he uh, did Paper Moon, where Tatum O'Neill, youngest actress ever to win the Best Supporting Actress uh, Oscar. Um, he then went on to do Mask with uh, with Cher. Oh, and before that, there was Daisy Miller. There was They All Laughed with Ben Gazzara, John Ritter, and Dorothy Stratton. Then there came Mask with Cher and Eric Stoltz, and Cher earned an uh, the film earned an Academy Award, and Cher won the Best Actress Prize at Cannes that year. Um, he did Noises Off, uh, the, the film version of Noises Off with Michael Caine and Christopher Reeve. Then the Last Picture Show sequel, which was based on Larry McMurchie's uh, Texasville. He 
has written 12 books um, on films and filmmaking, uh, the best-selling Who the Devil Made It, um, which includes interviews with 16 legendary directors, including Alfred Hitchcock and uh, Howard Hawks. I mean, he's... Wow! I mean, the man has just done everything. Um, his book, This is Orson Welles, um, is based on his conversations over a period of five years with uh, with Orson, and uh, that's a passion he shares with director Henry Jaglum, and I can't wait to talk to Peter about that. Um, amazingly he's not just done all of this with film and with actors he he was he uh, uh directed an episode of the sopranos and also had a recurring role as lorraine bronco brock um, lorraine brocco's shrink um which he played for four seasons he was fantastic on the sopranos um he also directed a four-hour documentary on Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, which I had no idea about. Um, that blows my mind. And it was awarded the 2009 Grammy for Best Long Form Music Video because everything Peter touches is gold. Golden, award-winning, amazing. Um, his latest film uh, in 2015, She's Funny That Way, starred Owen, Wils- um, Owen Wilson and Jennifer Aniston. And uh, an all-star, uh, a terrific ensemble cast. He's currently working on um, a long-term cherished project, preparing a final cut of Orson Welles' last film, The Other Side of the Wind, which completed shooting in the 70s, but has yet to be edited in its entirety. And Peter co-stars in the picture with John Huston, and he's been trying to, to complete the film um, since Orson's death in 1985. Um, amazing that he's dedicated to this um his uh his latest book is an intimate memoir titled but what i really want to do is direct my first picture shows 1965 to 1971 which is based on the candid diaries he kept during those years and we'll see how much of that he's willing to share with us tonight it is my thrill my honor my privilege my fangirl crush to welcome peter bogdanovich hi peter Hi. Thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure. This is um, my first um, remote uh, broadcast, and um, I cannot think of anybody more worthy to come out and see than you. And I'm so I'm I'm fangirl. I, I'm I'm tongue tied. I don't get nervous. People don't make me nervous. I, I I'm not nervous because you're you're lovely, but I'm excited. You have, Peter. Than <laughs> You've got me excited, Peter. Um, okay, so so basically, I mean, you know, I just went through all of your credits. Well, not all of them because that would have taken hours. Um, I didn't know that you started out as an actor. So 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 tell me. So you're a little kid. What's your dream when you're a little kid? What's your first well, everybody dream? Everybody thought I was going to be an actor mainly mm-hmm. because when I was five. I was acting my head off all the time. Well, at home in school? No, what? I just think um, there was a there was an incident that happened when I was about five or six, I guess. My parents used to go to Connecticut mm-hmm. to new uh, to um, near New London. Where did you grow up? Where Where did you in live? In Manhattan. Okay. But uh, we used to go summers to New London sometimes, mm-hmm. and and the train back that when I was five or six or whatever. I was given a, a red plastic telephone, mm-hmm. 
and evidently this is the family story. I don't remember. I sort of do remember a sort of a little bit of this, mm-hmm. but evidently I entertained the people in the in the in the train car. Yeah. By having phone conversations between Stalin, Roosevelt, and Churchill. Oh come on! And Stalin, I did in Serbo-Croatian, because I spoke Serbo-Croatian before I spoke English. So evidently, it was a big hit. You knew who Stalin was at five. I think so. Yeah, I remember I... when when I remember when Roosevelt died. I, I was only about five or six then. I remember that. My parents were crying. Were you Were your parents very political? Well, they liked Roosevelt. They would be crying today, I would assume. Oh, Jesus. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so so you're politically aware at five. That's a little, that's crazy to me. Uh, and you're acting. So were you doing plays in school? Were, were uh, you... I did eventually, yeah. I did a play when I was 12. I did, uh, I played Finian in Finian's Rainbow in a school, uh-huh. a school production. Uh, yeah, and do you, do you rem- all right, I don't know why this is crazy, but like I remember the first line I ever said in a play I when I was four. remember the first line. Go ahead. Eureka, Sharon, Sharon come quickly. <laughs> you know, I did it for my mother and she said, you better work on that Irish accent. <laughs> but I mean, it's so crazy how we remember that stuff, yeah, but it's right. like in there for, okay, so you did Finian's, so you sang. I don't know that Finian had any songs. I could have sworn. Oh, Finian himself, but I mean that was a musical, Finian's yeah, Rainbow. A musical, yeah. Okay, so you didn't have to sing, but did you sing when you were? When I was younger, I did, yeah. So okay, so you I did Finian's Rainbow at twelve. Yeah. I mean, just a little. So so, and what happened after that? Well, when I was um, fourteen, I wanted to go to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. They had a um, they had a, a Saturday class for mm-hmm. teenagers, so my parents sent me there. And the woman who was running the class, Eleanor Gould, I remember her name, she's mm-hmm. a very sweet woman. She asked me, by then I was 15, she asked me if I wanted to be an apprentice mm-hmm. and a member of the children's theater at a, at a theater called the Cherry County Playhouse in Traverse City, Michigan. Wow. So when I was 15, I got on a train. Get out of here. Yeah, and I went to Traverse City, Michigan. Was this during the summer? Yeah, summer summer theater. Uh huh. I went to, got off at Grand Rapids. Mm-hmm. Spent the night in the hotel. I love hotels, and that was my first night in a hotel. Wow. And then, uh, then the train in the morning to. Your parents let you go. If you went by yourself. Yeah. Wow. I was tall. You were tall. <laughs> wow. So I went to Traverse City, Michigan, and. Um, I, I turned 16 that summer. Mm-hmm. I have my, my birthday's in July. So um, so it was quite a great experience. They, they so had, what did you do what, as an what intern? It was summer, summer mm-hmm. theater, you know, in those days. They had stars come to, 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 to town. And mm-hmm. we, we, we would do, we would rehearse, the, 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 um, the resident company would rehearse mm-hmm. all week. Mm-hmm. And then the star, oh. who was doing the play all around the country, uh-huh. would come in on... The weekend, uh-huh. and rehearse once or twice with us, and then wow. we'd open, and then we'd rehearse the next night, the next the next week's play at, at night, and perform in the daytime. Wow! So I did not much for the first six weeks. I was I just moved furniture and so on. But in the seventh week, when Senya Hasso came to town, <laughs> I played her son, and it was a big part. It was quite. It was kind of second or third lead. Wow. And I was, uh, she said I was, I got more laughs than the guy who did it on Broadway. Wow. So that was nice. 
And I also directed, which I forgot that I directed, but somebody sent me a clipping from mm -hmm. a Traverse City newspaper in which it said that I directed this variety show of kids singing and so on, and then supposedly did a great Martin and Lewis impression. So now, was this something... Like, did I you did you make remember. a conscious decision that you wanted to be a director, or was it something that no, you just no, kind of leaned just, into? It just happened. It just happened. And then, then there was a, a guy there. My, my when you go through my career, it's all a series of coincidences. Pretty because, amazing coincidences. Because, yeah, really, they are kind of amazing. Well, they are miraculous. There's a guy there named Carlos Salgado, a very nice guy. Mm -hmm. He was 25 or something. And he said that he'd been studying with Stella Adler in New York, mm -hmm. and that she was great. And so when I got back to New York, mm -hmm. I, I got my parents to let me go to Stella Adler in the afternoon instead of going to athletic classes. Where did you go to high school? Collegiate. Uh-huh. I went to collegiate for 13 years. I wow, yeah. Pre-primary all the way through. David Duchovny went to collegiate, I think, actually. I don't know. Hmm. Um, so anyway, I went to study, I, I lied, that's when I got to Stella's, it just was, I had to be 18. I was 16, and I was tall, so I got in. Did you audition, did you have to audition? I can't remember, I don't, mm. maybe, mm -hmm. I don't think so. Mm -hmm. And um, I loved Stella Adler, she was great, I studied, I was with her for four years. Mm. And she was a fantastic woman. And then the directing kind of started there, what happened was, when I was about 18, I guess, uh, I was in a diner with five students from the, from the uh, mm -hmm. Stellas. And I don't know where this came from, but I just said, why don't I direct you guys in a scene? And they all said, okay, 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 okay sure. And um, now scene class uh -huh. was usually two people would get up and do a, a, a two-hander, or one guy would get up and do a monologue. Uh-huh. But well, suddenly five guys got up on the stage, and we did a they did a scene from Clifford Odette's play *The Big Knife*, mm -hmm. the Hollywood story. And when it was over, the class applauded, and Stella stood up and said, "Bravo, darlings! But you've been directed. Who directed you?" And they pointed at me. I was standing in the back of the studio. Peter. She turned to me. She said, "Bravo, darling! Brilliant." Wow. So I thought, well, maybe I'll get the play rights to the play and do the whole thing in off-Broadway. Wow. So I, one of the actors was a new Clifford, was a friend, gave mm -hmm. me his address. Mm -hmm. And Clifford Odets was, um, you know who you are. Yes, I do. Uh, he was in California at the at the time, mm -hmm. directing a movie, as a matter of fact. And um, I wrote him a two-page typed letter, very small, not double space, quite a long letter. <laughs> and about 10 days later, my mother woke me up in the morning. She said, you have a letter from Hollywood. Oh so and I, you're like 18 years old or something? I was, I was pushing 19, I think. Or wow. Maybe 19 by now, I can't remember. And um, it, was a, it was a letter with 20th Century Fox stationery, and he'd written Odette's so over the logo. In pencil. In fact, the whole thing was in pencil. Wow. <laughs> Handwritten. Crazy. And he said, you have herein my permission to do the play. Oh, my God. To talk to my agents. And he, you know, he gave me the name of the agents. And he, and he gave me a piece of advice. He said, remember that the suicide at the end is a, 
an act of faith. So I thought, okay. Wow. So then I then took me um, took me nine months to raise fifteen thousand. I was going to say, how'd you get the money? Fifteen grand I needed, and I got it eventually. What theater did you do it at? It's not there anymore. Mm -hmm. It was called the Madison Avenue Theater. It was mm -hmm. down on Thirtieth and Madison, mm -hmm. and um, we put it on in November of '59. And we played for about 63 performances, got better reviews. Wow! Got better reviews than the original production, which was directed by Lee Strasberg and starred John Garfield. <laughs> and did you have any temptation to, you didn't have any temptation to be in it? You wanted to direct? Well, I wanted to direct it, but I did actually play the lead for the last two weeks of the show because the guy who was playing the lead uh -huh. got a TV movie and left, and I was so tired I couldn't face Getting some directing somebody else in it, so I just learned, I knew the lines. Wow! So I just did it. The cast the cast wasn't thrilled, but I, <laughs> I, I somebody somebody grayed my hair, mm -hmm. and I played it. it was supposed to be forty. I was twenty. Wow! And um, but else you can do it with gray hair, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, that was fun, and that was it. So did you? So now you continued to do, you did some more acting after that. I had done some acting before that. I, I, I left out a whole bunch of things. Yeah. Every summer after Traverse City, I went somewhere else. First summer, Like summer stock kind of summer stuff? Summer stock mm -hmm. every summer. Mm -hmm. I, went, I, went to, I went to the Stratford, Connecticut Shakespeare Festival. Mm -hmm. Then I did the New York Shakespeare Festival in the park. Wow. And then I went to Falmouth, Massachusetts and did 10 weeks there playing a whole bunch of different parts. And so every summer I was acting. So was it, was it with any regret that you let that go? Or, or did you become so passionate about directing that it was? I don't, I don't know. I, I, I wasn't so unhappy that I was, wasn't acting. I, I hated auditioning. Mm -hmm. I thought auditioning was not a, it wasn't, a, a, it wasn't an accurate gauge. Mm -hmm. of, of what a person could do. I, as I found later on when I was directing a lot, people would come in and read for me, and sometimes the best readings were not necessarily the best actors. So as an actor being a director and knowing that, I have a feeling you had a way of bringing that out in people. Well, I, because, because I studied acting. You know, that's the only thing mm -hmm. I ever studied. I didn't mm -hmm. study directing, um, except watching a lot of movies. Mm -hmm. But... Um, I learned a lot about directing from Stella because she sort of taught, a gen, generally she was very inclusive. Mm -hmm. and, um, but even now when I direct, I sort of have to walk through the part a little bit to see what to tell the actor to do. I remember I, I met Jimmy Cagney once, James Cagney, and I said, how many directors have you worked with, Mr. Cagney? He said, I worked with 80 directors. But only five of them would I call real directors. <laughs> That's a great impression. I said, well, what is a real director? Mm -hmm. A real director is a guy who, if I don't know what the hell to do, can get up and show me. Nice. So I thought, well, I can do that. And did you do that when you were directing? Oh, yeah. Do you do all, that? All the time. I love that. Yeah, well, some actors don't like it. But well, I, yeah. A line I, reading. I don't do you, don't, you don't do a line reading, I've though. I've done line readings. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sure. Some actors don't mind it at all. Other actors don't like it. Uh, if they don't like it, I don't do it. Okay. 
So, so was an or, or so it was an organic process to start directing. Did you ever feel because you didn't study it? Did you ever feel that you didn't know what you did? Were you, were you fake? Did you ever have to fake it? No. It just came natural. Well, you know, I guess so. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, 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 I did see an enormous number of plays in Broadway mm -hmm. from the time I was thirteen until I left New York. Mm -hmm. I saw a lot of productions. I saw really the the 50s was a great period in the New York theater. Tennessee Williams, Cat and Hot Tin Roof, mm. and Camino Real, and, and uh, that was a great production, Camino Real. And Cat and Hot Tin Roof with Ben Gazzara and Barbara <laughs> Belchettis, and End as a Man with Ben Gazzara. And I saw Ben Gazzara do uh, Virginia Woolf with uh, I heard he was great. Fantastic. Yeah, he was, he was great. Fantastic. Actor. So I... Um, I saw a lot of plays, mm -hmm. and I saw a lot of movies. I kept a card file of every movie I saw from the time I was 12 and a half till I was 30 and a half. Wow. 19 years, a card on each film. And what would you Tight. write on your what would you write on your cards? What I thought of the film. Like a review? A little review, yeah. And you were also a writer. Start, you started writing young. Um, well, yeah, that was another strange thing. I, I, I don't know why this happened, but... Um, when I was at Collegiate, mm -hmm. they had a school paper, mm -hmm. Collegiate Journal, and I said I'd like to do a column. I'd like to have a column, and I'll review movies and plays. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that by doing that, I could have gotten in free. <laughs> I didn't know that until I got out of high school. Too bad. But I kept mm -hmm. it going mm -hmm. after I got out of high school, and, and that's where the, the false notion that I started as a critic came out, because I would write little pieces for this... Ivy Magazine, this magazine was a college magazine, and um, and then I got. I, Did you go to college? No. Okay. I went to. I took some uh, extension courses at Columbia, but it bored the sh mm. shit out of me. Really? Yeah, I didn't want to. Film classes? No, I. I, I there was a woman named Cecile Starr who had a film class, and I used to go and just look at the movies and then leave. <laughs> she claimed to be my teacher, but anyway. Aha. Uh -huh. Uh, then I raised the money, as I said, for, for the play. I did the play. And the only star who came out of it was a fellow named Carol O'Connor. Get out. Yeah, it was the first thing he did. In How movie. old was he? Well, he must have been in his 30s. Wow. And it was the first thing he did in New York. He came over from Ireland, and he auditioned twice and got the part of the studio head. He was very good. And... Um, he he went on. He, right after that, he got an agent and mm -hmm. went to Hollywood, and then eventually became famous as Archie Bunker. Wow. Okay. So okay. So you directed this play, and I know you segued to films with Roger Corman. How much later was that? Yeah, that like was what? That was. Later. That was okay. So what was happening in between 19, there? We're talking about nineteen fifty nine, sixty. Okay. Season. That's when I did the play. Okay. Then in sixty one. I was asked to be the artistic director of a season of summer theater in Phoenicia, New York, upstate New York, near Woodstock. Mm -hmm. And we did 12 plays. I directed four of them wow. and supervised the other ones. And that's where I met the woman who turned out to be my first wife, Polly Platt. We hired her as a costume designer. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, I had written, to make some bread, mm -hmm. I was living with my parents, but to make a few bucks, I would write program notes for 
for certain theaters and in, in, in film film societies in mm-hmm. New York, New York, and one of them that I wrote for a theater called the New Yorker Theater, which is gone now, but it was a very hip theater. Mm-hmm. Dan Talbot owned it, ran it, ran it, and it was right near my where I was living with my parents, so I used to go over there, and I did a program note about Orson Welles' Othello. I called it the best Shakespeare film ever made, which was not the common wisdom at that time at all. Mm-hmm. And I get a call from Richard Griffith, who was the curator of the Museum of Modern Art Film Library. And he said, we're doing a um, season of Orson Welles here, the first retrospective in the United States. This is 1961. Mm-hmm. We'd like you to do the, uh, the, the mon- curate the show and do the accompanying monograph. I said, why me? You usually do that, Dick. He said, well, he said yeah, but I don't like Orson Welles. Uh, <laughs> He said, but, uh, but my, my, a lot of but my, our members do, uh-huh. and our colleagues in Europe do, and so on. So we'd like to do it, Orson Welles retrospective, but we, we, we want somebody partisan, and you clearly are from this oh. program note we read. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I said, sure, and I have 50 bucks to write the monograph and curate the Okay, show. I had never heard the term monograph before. How long is a monograph? It depends. How long was yours? On Orson. About 20 pages. Okay. So it was nicely printed and, pub- mm-hmm. and published by Doubleday. And it was my first book. Mm-hmm. It wasn't really a book, but... Um, called The Cinema of Orson Welles. And it was... It, it was, it was I didn't interview him. I didn't even meet him until six years, seven years later. But well. we sent it off to him somewhere mm-hmm. in Europe. He was shooting the trial. And um, so I did that, and then... I was looking to do another play off Broadway, mm-hmm. and one of the plays that we did in in uh, Phoenicia mm-hmm. was a play by Kaufman and Hart called Once in a Lifetime, mm-hmm. which is a, another another Hollywood story, mm-hmm. and uh, it was a big hit. It was the opening thing we did, and so I thought I'd bring it to New York. hadn't been revived, and um, I had a I had a, a hemorrhaging ulcer. So we had to postpone the thing mm-hmm. for a, about a year, and um, so I had the idea. I, I, I we, we ran a bunch of Howard Hawks movies at the New Yorker, mm-hmm. and I was really riveted by his work, and I wanted to see all his films. So I had an idea. Um, Para- Paramount was about to release his new film Hatari mm-hmm. with John Wayne, so I called a friend of mine that I knew at, at the. At, in the publicity department at Paramount, Saul Cooper, I remember. I said, You remember like everybody's name. Oh well, my today God. I do. Wow. Not necessarily tomorrow. <laughs> uh, I said, Listen, if I can get the Museum of Modern Art to do a Hawks retrospective, will you guys pay for it? Mm-hmm. And he said, Yeah, sure. So I called the museum. I said, Dick, if I can get Paramount to pay for it, will you <laughs> do a retrospective, Howard Hawks retrospective? He says, Sure. So I got them together. Nice. And I got paid as first movie money. I got, I think I got a hundred and a quarter a week for quite a while, and that was a big success. Mm-hmm. But for to do that, uh, I left out something. Um, before I'd done the Orson Welles thing, but before the Howard Hawks thing, mm-hmm. I went to. Um, I'm trying to remember when that happened. Uh, oh yeah, I went to California for the on my own dime. Mm-hmm having saved up enough money. <clears throat> I wanted to meet Clifford Odets mm-hmm. in person. 
and convince him to let me do another play of his off-Broadway. This was in January of 61. And I met Clifford, he was very nice to me, he wouldn't give me rights to do anything else because he, 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 he sort of tested the waters and the reviews were not that nice to him. They, 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 really? No, they were fair. Uh-huh. But he felt that he didn't want to do anything else in, in, uh, for the time being. But mm -hmm. I met a lot of people because I, <laughs> I had a friend of mine who I knew, Bob Silvers, who eventually invented the New York Review of Books. But at that time, he was at Harper's Magazine. I don't know how I met him. Mm -hmm. But I said, I'm going to Hollywood, and I'd like to do a piece for you about Hollywood. He said, well, I can't give you an assignment, but I'll, I'll, be, I'll send you a letter saying that I'll read anything you might write. So I didn't show that letter. I just told, every, <laughs> told everybody I had an assignment from Harper's to do a piece about the state of the art in Hollywood. So I met everybody. How did you have your confidence... I don't know how you had your confidence in all of these things, but as a writer, you didn't go to college. Where did you learn to write? Well, I had a very, very good teacher of English in high school, mm -hmm. a man named Henry Adams. He was brilliant. Did you, you had to read a lot to learn to write, I assume. I read quite a bit. Mm -hmm. He was a great teacher, though. Mm -hmm. He was really good. And um, so I, I guess that's how I started writing. Mm -hmm. And then I went... Um, I interviewed Howard Hawks, I can't remember now if it was 66 or 61 or 62, I can't remember now. Um, I interviewed Howard Hawks and became friendly with him. We did the cinema of Howard Hawks, mm -hmm. a bigger mon pardon me, a bigger monograph. How big can a monograph be before it's like a... A book? Yeah. I don't know, it was about 50 pages by mm -hmm. now. And then the following year I did the same thing with Hitchcock at Universal was bringing out the birds. And I, again, got the two of them together and got paid more money that time. And are you like a fan, are you a fan of theirs? Oh, or? huge. Yeah. I loved Hawks and Hitchcock. Mm -hmm. And I interviewed Hitchcock, so, but I had already met him before, a year before. Mm -hmm. So I had three monographs came out. Then we did the Once in a Lifetime, and it was a disaster. Really? Well, a terrible thing happened. I, I, we had all the money. Mm -hmm early on, and the woman who, Polly Platt was my first wife, she blew it. We were in the car with the producer who was putting up all the money, and he started mm -hmm. talking about casts and ideas for casting, and I didn't like the ideas, but I wasn't going to attack him or say mm -hmm. I just was going to play along with him mm -hmm. for a while. She attacked him. Oh. What are you doing talking about, who the hell do you think you are to saying about who's going to be in it, and so on. He got out of the cab, and... Oh. I just saw him again, so I had a hard time getting the money. Mm -hmm. And so I was missed a few rehearsals, and we had a, we, we, it, was a it was a bad, bad opening night, mm -hmm. and we closed. Mm -hmm. It was very sad. However, by this time, I left out a whole thing here. Okay. Um, that piece I was supposed to do for Harper's Magazine, mm -hmm. I finally wrote it about uh, about six months after the, the after I'd been there, mm -hmm. and Harper's turned it down, the New Yorker turned it down, Atlantic turned it down, and then I was at a, at a thing for Howard Hawks. They they gave a dinner party for Hatari mm -hmm. at New Rochelle. Uh, why I don't know why it was New Rochelle anyway. And at the same table as me. Um, 
was a young Southern guy sitting across, and he mentioned some director, and I said, he's a terrible director, and he, I mentioned some director, and he said, he's a terrible director. We argued. Mm -hmm. It was reasonably friendly. I was, I was kind of vicious, and he was vicious <laughs> back. And as we're leaving, I had heard he worked for Esquire, but mm -hmm. as we were leaving, I said, what do you do at Esquire? He says, I'm the managing editor. Oh, shit. Oh. Well, and you, and you have to know, Esquire at that time was mm -hmm. the hottest magazine in the country. Mm -hmm. It was like the really hip magazine. Mm -hmm. It isn't now, but it was then. Mm -hmm. Mainly because of Harold Hayes, mm -hmm. who was the guy I met. Mm -hmm. And Harold, uh, so about a week later, I called him up and I said, I, I'm the guy that was insulting you at dinner. Do you remember? He said, yeah, I remember. I said, listen, I wrote a piece. About, and you're still a kid. Well, I was, how old was I? I was about 21. Yeah, you're a kid. I said, I wrote a piece about Hollywood, but you'd you know, like to see it? He said, send it over. About three, four days later, he called me and he says, hey, buddy, we're going to buy that piece. We're going to run it as the lead article wow. in the August issue. You got any more stuff? Because we make it a little longer. I said, yeah. And he said, we'd like you to go to Hollywood and do a profile on Jerry Lewis. I said, why on Jerry Lewis? He said, well, we like what you did about Jerry in, in this, this piece, a mm -hmm. short section. And we, we think you could write a hell of a piece about him. So they sent me to Hollywood, and I did a piece wow. of Jerry Lewis. That was the I wrote a lot of stuff for Esquire mm -hmm. in the in the sixties. I did John Ford. I did Jimmy Stewart. I did um, several other. Pieces. Okay, so now while you're doing that, are you still thinking about directing, or are you focused on being a writer at this point? No, I'm thinking about what I'm going to do, and I did once in a lifetime mm -hmm. off Broadway. It mm -hmm. was a flop. So. I was kind of miserable about that, and um, a fellow that a man that we'd met doing the Jerry Lewis piece mm -hmm. was a director named Frank Tashlin, and um, Frank came to New York and we came up to visit us, and he says to me, "What do you want to direct? Movies or theater?" And I said, "Movies." He said, well, "What the hell are you doing here? Come to L.A. That's where we make them." Uh, had that now had that been something that you did you think did you just reason, say that, that on the spot? Occur, no, he said it. But but was it was that wasn't a dream from like? Oh yeah, I wanted to direct. Movies. Yeah, yeah, okay. Oh sure. Mm -hmm. The two plays I directed in New York were about movies. That, well, that's what I'm thinking. Everything you've done it did before that was about Hollywood, yeah, sort exactly. of. Yeah, yeah. And so Frank's even said he said most of the pieces you do for Esquire are about Hollywood. So mm -hmm. why don't you just come out there? Mm-hmm. Well. Uh, Four months later, we bought a car mm -hmm. for 150 bucks. <laughs> it was a piece of shit. <laughs> a co convertible Ford painted yellow. Nice. Jesus. <laughs> and we found out after we set up mm -hmm. that it had a cracked block. I don't know if you know what that means. I, I know that it's the end of the car. It's not good. Yeah. <laughs> but they sort of pasted it together with submarine glue or something. <laughs> And we made it across the country, but we had to put it in neutral every time there was a hill. <laughs> we put it in neutral so it would cool off the motor because mm -hmm. the motor was steaming. We got to Kansas and there were no hills in Kansas, mm -hmm. and that's where we got the idea to do Paper Moon in Kansas because that was set in Mississippi. So, but we thought it'd be fun to have no hills, and that well. was a few years later. Anyway, got to California found a house, wrote 
magazine articles mm -hmm. that's what making I that's how you were making your living, living as mm -hmm. Esquire and then the TV Guide and something for the Times and um, a few pieces like mm -hmm. that I was mainly Esquire and uh, you know I, I went took a couple of plane trips I just was reading my diary I kept a diary for that's another story and you're writing you're doing that book now aren't yeah, you? Right. yeah yeah I just read a thing where the people at the airport uh, recognized my name mm -hmm. from Esquire. That was sort of a, I had a little reputation from that. It's weird. In fact, about a year after we, almost exactly a year after we got to California, I, uh, I went to a, not a screening, but an actual theater mm -hmm. to see a, a movie by Jacques Demy called Lola, I think. And um, the guy I was with, knew somebody who's sitting right behind us mm -hmm. who was sitting with Roger Corman. And I got introduced to Roger Corman. He says, I've read your stuff in Esquire. He says, do you, do you want to write movies? I said, yeah. Oh, come on. It's a joke, isn't it? So I said, yeah, I'd love to write. So he, he told me something he'd like to have me write. Mm -hmm. he, said, he said, I want a, a kind of an adventure picture, something like Lawrence of Arabia or Bridge on the River Kwai, but cheap. Hello. But, but cheap. <laughs> yeah. And think about Poland because I've got a very good location in Poland. Now, had you had you written had you written any scripts? Had you no? And had you studied how to do that, or no? How did you do that? Well, I did write a script actually, but for a short mm -hmm. when I was a few years before that. I never. I, I can't find the goddamn thing. I lost. But anyway, I wrote a I wrote a short story and I based the script on the short story. Mm -hmm. I don't know how I did it. I, just... I mean, how did you do these things? How did you just... Okay, I'm just going to be a director. Okay, I'm just going to be a writer. Okay, I'm just going to be a screenwriter. Being a screenwriter, I mean, that's a very specific skill with... Did you did you read another screenplay to... How well, did I, you... I looked at a few screenplays to okay. see how, the, how you type Holy... it. <laughs> yeah, you have to do stage directions. You have yeah, to do all things. That, yeah. Well, anyway, while mm -hmm. I was getting ready to write this thing mm -hmm. for Roger, because... We came up with a few, Polly and I came up with a bunch of different ideas, and he shot down most of them. Twice. Finally, he approved one of them, and we started to do the script. Mm -hmm. And then he calls me up, and he says, I'm just starting a movie called All the Fallen Angels. The title got changed to The Wild Angels. Mm -hmm. But anyway, motorcycle picture, which there'd only been one motorcycle picture made previous to this, which was wild, The Wild One with mm -hmm. Ron and Brandon, which mm -hmm. was a flop. And Roger was going to do one, and... He said, I want you to come down and read the script and see what you think of it. So I went down to the studio and read the script. And, and he has all this respect for you based on your writing for Esquire. Right. Okay. And I read the script and I said, this is terrible. He says, I know, I've got ten pages of notes and I couldn't even get past the first one with the writer. I said, well, uh, what are you going to do? He says, Can you, would you like to rewrite it? And I said, well, sure, what do you want to do? And we discussed it. And so then I rewrote about 85% of the script, no credit, because he didn't want to pay me Writers Guild money. So I got 300 bucks to rewrite the entire script. Wow. And How long did it take you? It's like your first a real. A couple of three weeks, I mean, a couple of weeks. <laughs> uh, I looked, oh my I looked God. at the, the diary, I was keeping a diary mm -hmm. at this point. And it was it was not that long. Jesus. And then, then, 
he asked me to look for locations for him. So Polly and I went in the car and we drove all around where he wanted us to mm -hmm. go from Palm Springs, and Palm Desert, that area. And we found the locations, shot took pictures of the locations, and so he liked them all. And then he would ask me to block out the scenes for him, mm -hmm. how I would stage it. Mm -hmm. would not stage it, but how I would shoot it. So I did that, and he pretty much did what I suggested. Wow. And then he kept throwing things into second unit. And that's the first time you had Been any kind of film directing kind of thing going right, on, right? Right, right, yeah. I and had, that was had, also just an instinctual thing? Well, I had been on the set of a couple of people, mainly John okay. Ford. I'd watched him work for three weeks in Monument Valley. Three weeks. It was a good uh, education. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was actually. He was very funny with me. Um, anyway, long story short, I, I worked on The Wild Angels for 22 weeks. I wrote, rewrote about 85% of the script. Hmm. I then did the second unit because he kept throwing things in the second unit. He says, I haven't got time to shoot this. <laughs> he, was, he said, you shoot it. Or he gave me the job of second unit after mm -hmm. a while. He said, you'll do the second unit. Okay. So I shot, I shot second unit for three weeks. And it wasn't strictly second unit because I directed Peter Fonda and Nancy Sinatra, the stars of the picture. I had them in a couple of scenes. And mm -hmm. Bruce, Bruce did a whole sequence with Bruce Stern. So I did a quite a, quite a bit of that picture, and Roger was very happy with what I did. <laughs> the The editor was a guy named Monty Hellman, who was a, became a quite well known director, so underground director. And I, he cut the stuff in, and Roger said, "Your stuff doesn't cut." I said, "What do you mean it doesn't cut?" Well, Monty says it doesn't cut. And he said, "Well, then he probably did it wrong." So I looked at it and I said, "Yeah, he's not cutting it right." He said, "Well, you cut it." Well, I don't know how to cut. Get out of here! He says, that you, I said, I don't know how to cut. I mean, use the machinery. Uh-huh. So, well, that's easy. Dennis will show you. So when he got one of his assistants, he, so Dennis shows me how to use this moviola and splicer. And the, uh, yeah. And they sent the stuff out to my house in, in the Van Nuys. Mm -hmm. And I cut the stuff in and everything stayed, was in, you know. I, oh, my God. Well, just a scotch tape, you know, in those days. Wow. So I did that, and the picture was the biggest hit of his career. Wow, that's a huge, huge success. And so he said he appreciated that, mm -hmm. and gave me the opportunity to make my own film, mm -hmm. which became Targets. Mm -hmm. And now that was a funny sort of situation because. And you did like everything in that film, correct? Write, direct, direct. produce, yeah. Mm -hmm. act. Yeah. I acted in it too, yeah. That was a coincidence, though. I not didn't plan to act, but the guy I wrote it for didn't want to come out to California, so I said, I'll just do it myself, I guess. Um, and so now you're also directing yourself. Yeah. And you're still a kid. I was, how old was I? I, was, I wasn't that young anymore. <laughs> I was, what year was that? Oh, I was 20. 60, 67, so I was 28. Still a kid. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it was funny how he presented it. He said, Boris Karloff owes me two weeks' work. Two days' work, sorry. Mm -hmm. He owes me two days' work. Mm -hmm. I want you to do this. Shoot 20 minutes with Karloff in two days. You can shoot 20 minutes in two days. I've shot whole pictures in two days. <laughs> God, this is true, yes. And he says, shoot 20 minutes with Karloff in two days. Then I want you to take 20 minutes of Karloff footage from a movie called The Terror, 
that we made a few years ago. It's not a great picture, but you can take 20 minutes out of it. Now mm -hmm. you put that together, now you got 40 minutes of Carlo. Then shoot with some other actors and shoot another 40 minutes, and mm -hmm. I've got a 80, new 80 minute Carlo picture. Mm -hmm. Are you interested? And I said, yeah, sure. <laughs> So we couldn't figure out what the hell to do with Boris because he was he was 79 years old and his kind of Victorian horror didn't, didn't appeal to me. And the terror wasn't just bad, it was super bad. <laughs> so we eventually got the idea what to do. Mm -hmm. Have you seen the film? No. Well, we got the idea what to do from a joke. I was shaving one morning. I was thinking, what am I going to do with this thing? couldn't figure out what to do and I met a, thought to myself okay I know I'll open like this I'll show the, we'll show the end of the terror mm -hmm. the lights will come up in a projection room and Roger Corman will be sitting there next to Boris Carlo mm -hmm. and Boris will turn to him and say that is the worst film I've ever seen <laughs> and then I thought that was funny and then I thought wait a minute that's not a bad idea what if Boris is an actor then we don't have to then we don't have to well, he plays himself, doesn't he? Yeah, that's what yeah. he does, yeah. yeah. I said, what, what if he's an actor? Mm -hmm. Then the film that he's in isn't my film, it's some film he... Anyway. Then we thought, what is modern horror? Mm -hmm. Well, that, it recently, about a year before, this kid, Charles Whitman, had gone up to the University of Texas Tower and shot about 40 people. Um, it was the first mass mm. thing. And then, actually, while we were shooting... Somebody shot, shot people on the freeway. And so I said, this is modern horror. Mm -hmm. So we told the story contrasting the two. One wanted to quit pictures because his kind of horror isn't horror anymore. Mm -hmm. And this other kid, this Charles Whitman sort of kind of kid, mm -hmm. kills his family and then goes on a spree, a shooting spree. And then the two stories converge at the end. Wow. I have to see this. Is it is it accessible? Oh sure, it's on DVD. All right. Um, so we did that, and I didn't want it to be released by American International, which was the Schlock Studio at the time. Mm -hmm. Roger worked with them all the time. I wanted to go through a major, so after it was finished, somehow we got it to Bob Evans at Paramount. I, I know how we did it. it was because his assistant used to, his secretary used to be Jerry Lewis's secretary, and I knew her when I had done the piece on Jerry. So I, I asked Carol Saracino, her name is, I said, can you get Bob Evans to see Targets? And eventually he saw it, he called me and he says, you ruined my weekend. I said, what do you mean? He said, I wanted to look at your picture. I was going to look at a reel and then go to this party, and I couldn't even turn it off. I had to see the whole picture. We're interested in buying it, and that's a long story. They did eventually buy a Paramount. Okay, so wait, just stop one second. So. Do you have you're you're starting out? Do you do you know? Do you have a goal in your head when you're starting? I want to be a major motion picture director. Like, did you see the whole thing in front of you, or did you just take one step at a time? One step at a time. Okay. I didn't know where I was going. Mm -hmm. I, I just thought I'd be I wanted to make movies if I could. <clears throat> it was a lot of fun making movies, especially the ones you made. Well, it was, they're not always fun to make, but, mm. but I enjoyed it, and I was obsessed with it. Mm -hmm. And I'd seen a lot of movies. In fact, I used to, with friends, I'd walk down the street in New York, and I'd say, no, 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 so, no I, don't want, I don't want snow there. <laughs> There'd be snow in the street. I was, no snow, take the snow off. You're setting the set. <laughs> yeah, I'm kidding around with my friend. Or in the movie theater, I'd say, here comes the cut. 
And I, 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 the, it was badly directed. I could know exactly where the cut was going. <laughs> anyway, those are the. Yeah. So Bob Evans. Bob Evans bought the picture. Mm -hmm. uh, Charlie Bluedorn was Golf and Western. He mm -hmm. owned the company at the time. And he loved the picture too, so they bought it. The problem was after that, they were afraid to release it because first I think Martin Luther King was killed, mm -hmm. and then Bobby Kennedy. Mm -hmm. And they were afraid. Oh, and so you have the, you have the shooting. A lot of shooting, mm -hmm. and people were, they were afraid. So mm -hmm. they did eventually release it <clears throat> with a with an ad campaign that was trying to be sort of social-minded social and the yeah. ad campaigns, why gun control? Wow. So everybody thought it was like a documentary and mm. nothing went. Oh. Well, we got good reviews. The New York mm. Times reviewed it three times in, in, wow. in two weeks. They did a big Sunday piece and everything. And um, so it was a success to steam. And so now you're like, uh, now you're a director. I'm a director. And the picture, this is before the picture was even released. I was, people were interested in me because they'd, the, they'd seen the picture. Mm -hmm. And then the question was, what was I going to do next? Mm -hmm. So, uh, well, anyway, uh, do you want to hear all of this? I want to hear it. We'll, we'll do a two-parter. <laughs> well, what happened then was, um, I was, I was, see, all during this period, I was also interviewing directors mm -hmm. for a book that I had planned, which didn't come out until 1997. Wow. But I was thinking about it. This, is, this was the Hitchcock and Cooker and I interviewed and Hawks. Hitchcock, and, Cooker, mm -hmm. Hawks I interviewed for the monograph, mm -hmm. and Hitchcock for the monograph, but then I uh, uh, augmented it with more interviews. Mm -hmm. And I was doing books while I was, for example, I was finished cutting targets, and then I immediately was finishing the John Ford book that I did. Did you have a daily discipline at, in your? Uh, do you have a daily discipline? But not now. Okay, how about that? Well, I did. I do now, even too. Yeah, I guess I'm I sure do. you do. You're still so prolific. What, so what's 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 your day? What is your day? What did your day look like then? Well, if I was doing the picture of mm -hmm. targets, that was my focus was on that. Okay. Entirely, and mm -hmm. then when I finished that, mm -hmm. I. Had, I had assistants, mm -hmm. and we, we did the John Ford book next, and then we did the Fritz Lang book, and I, I would read How many my, hours a day would you write? I don't know. A lot. You had to. I, you wrote, would, I wrote quickly. Um, really? Yeah. Um, it depended on what the job that I had to do was, mm -hmm. where the time went. Mm -hmm. So with Targets, that was the main job. I, I just, just did that, and then I had a, an assistant typing up the, mm -hmm. transcribing and typing up the John Ford interview and so on. And my, my ex-wife, my When you write, do you write longhand or do you write on a... In those days, I did everything on a legal, yellow legal pad, mm -hmm. longhand, and somebody mm -hmm. would type it. Um, now I use a computer because mm -hmm. I think they're terrific. Mm -hmm. they're, they're burning my eyes out, I think, but <laughs> nevertheless. Um, so, uh, where was I? Um, so I interrupted oh, I, oh, I, the daily I, I, discipline. I, I, yeah, I was, I was. After targets, I interviewed Don Siegel, mm -hmm. and Don became friendly, and he was asked to to do a, a movie called The Looters, mm -hmm. and he couldn't do it, and so he and the producer was Walter Wanger, a mm -hmm. very legendary producer. And Don said, "I can't do it, but you're to look this kid Bogdanovich. He's pretty good." 
maybe he could do it. And they ran targets, and the guy hired me, and I did a script on the looters, um, which we never made. Mm-hmm. But in the, while that was going on, I was still writing for Esquire. I uh, no, I, I'd stopped by then. I stopped. I stopped by then because uh, I decided to focus on movies entirely. Mm-hmm. And um, I was meeting a lot of people, and it was getting compliments on targets, and people wanted to meet me. And Sal Minio was a friend of mine. Oh God, I love Sal Minio. He was a sweetheart. Mm-hmm. And Sal came over to the house one day, and he said, "He brought." Oh no, let me tell this another way. I was in a drugstore. Mm-hmm. Looking at paperbacks and on those racks that they have mm-hmm. in drugstores, and there was once on the I saw the last picture show it said, and I thought that's a, it sounds like a title of a picture I should make. That was my reaction, and I picked it up and looked at the back and it said teenagers growing up in Texas. I said I don't give a shit about that. And I put it back. <laughs> wow. Two weeks later, Sal Mignon comes over and he hands me the same goddamn paperback. Oh come on. I swear, and he says, you know, I always wanted to play the lead in this, but I'm too old now. But I think you might enjoy the book. So I said, okay, and I put it aside. Didn't mm-hmm. read it. Two weeks after that, a producer named John Cutts, an English producer, comes and he gives me the same book. Oh my God. He says, God. I think you might be interested in this. Well, I finally said to my wallet, to the pilot, would you read this and tell me what you think? So she read it and she said, she was a fast reader. Mm-hmm. She said, well, it's a very good book, but I don't know how you'd make it as a picture. Well, that interested me. Because mm-hmm. I, I had a theory that you could make anything into a picture. Uh-huh. You knew how to do it. So I read the book. And I thought it was really was a very good book, particularly the dialogue, mm-hmm. which, is, which is the big thing you look for. Mm-hmm. And um, I figured out how to make it. Just, just do the book. It was simple. I, the book was well constructed. We had to drop things, of course. Mm-hmm. And it was set in the 50s, but it was sort of an amorphous 50s because there were things from the early 50s, things from the later 50s. It was not specific dates. So I mm-hmm. decided to pinpoint exactly when it, when it was, which mm-hmm. would limit what we could use for music and mm-hmm. limitation. You had to know where, where you stop. Mm-hmm. So I picked 51, 52, and then... But then there was a whole problem about getting the rights because somebody else owned them. Mm-hmm. But I went to... Uh, uh, BBS had produced Easy Rider and Five Easy Pieces. Is this when you met Henry? I met Henry a long time ago. I met Henry Jaglum in New York um, in 1959. Wow. Because we were were both doing an off-Broadway show at the same time. Mm -hmm. He was producing, I was producing and directing. So Henry knew the guys at BBS because he was going to maybe make a picture for them. Mm -hmm. So he got them to look at targets. Mm-hmm. They liked it, and I went and met with Bert Schneider, and he said, you have anything you want to do? Bring it to us. We'd like to work with you. Wow. So I brought him the book. Mm-hmm. It was a rather funny conversation, actually. I said, I've got a book that I'd like to do. I'm on the phone. I said, it's called The Last Picture Show. He said, well, send it over. I said, why don't you buy it? I did. I said, I don't know why. I said, I want to see if he was interested. I said, why don't you buy it? So he sort of laughed and said, okay. About a week later, he called me and said, well, I bought it. it took me oh, while my to, God. It took me a while to find it, but I bought it. And uh, he said, I thought you said somebody else had the rights. Didn't you say somebody else uh, had the rights? That's coming to that. Uh-huh. So I said, well, there's a problem. Mm-hmm. Some guy named Steve Friedman owns the rights, mm-hmm. has an option on the rights. 
I think yet by then he'd already bought them actually. And Bert said, Steve Friedman, little Stevie Friedman, I went to camp with him. Is he as big a jerk now as he was then? I said, yeah. He died, so it's okay, we can say this. Um, well, he got, the, Bert got the rights, brought, made a very good deal with Stephen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, made a good deal for him, actually, for Steve. He was very, Bert was very fair. Mm. And uh, I said, I made that. So now that cast that you put together, all unknowns at the time. Yeah. How did that happen? Well, uh, I don't know. We got lucky, I guess. Um, wow. Bob Rafelson, who was one of the partners, mm-hmm. gave me a list of about 30 women mm-hmm. of the age of 30 and 30 up to 40, like. And um, I screened it with Cloris, by the way, not that long ago at Phil Rosenthal's, and really? it was unbelievable watching it with Cloris. Yeah. What did she say? She, she, it was very emotional. It was very, it was very emotional. I, I think we were all crying. And I saw Carl Reiner was in the room that day, and Alison Janney and Valerie Harper, and it was an amazing group to watch that your film oh. with. And uh, it's totally held up the test of time. I'll say. It was yeah, very there's nothing dated about it because it's sort nothing of predated. Fantastic. It's, it's in the fifties. Yeah, the chorus was great. Man. Oh my gosh. Great man. We did that last scene in the picture. And she had wanted to play it for me. She said, let me show you how I'm going to do it. I said, I don't want to see it. She said, well, how, how am I going to know? I said, I'll see it when you shoot it. Wow. She said, well, don't, don't you want to see how I'm going to do it? I said, no. I had learned a trick from Henry Fonda. Mm-hmm. I was interviewing him for something, for the Jimmy Stewart piece. And I said to him, we're talking about the Grapes of Wrath. Mm-hmm. And he told me an interesting thing. He said that John Ford wouldn't let the mother, uh, Jane Darwell, and Fonda uh, rehearse the last scene when they said the goodbye scene. Um, Ford didn't let them let them rehearse it, but he didn't want to see it. And I figured out why, because the the only audience that an actor has is the director, mm-hmm. and if they play it for him a number of times. The emotional scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, they might blow the emotion, mm. and it won't be that first what Ford calls that first time emotion. So, I didn't want to waste it. I love that. And I, when I've done that with any any kind of emotional scene, I just we just shoot it, and then maybe if I might have something to say, I say it then. But I love that. Yeah, I, I just good actors. I was just talking to Paula Poundstone. She's on my show this week, and she was saying that she doesn't write her stuff and she doesn't prepare what she's going to do. And what makes it successful is because she's so excited to share what she's going to say. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like the same kind of thing. It's well, you just the the, the we did that scene, for example, with Cloris. Mm-hmm. And I said, "Cut, print, we got it." She said, "I can do it better." I said, "No, you can't. You just won the Oscar." Come on. I swear. Because I had said to her when I cast her, mm-hmm. I said, you know, you could win an Oscar for this. And she said, why? I said, I don't know, I just think you in this part could win an Oscar. Because she was she was known around town, but she wasn't You're making name. the hair stand up on the back. This is true. But it, okay, so th- this is something I want to ask you, because you've, what you, what you have done for women, I mean, share. Tatum O'Neill, Cloris Leachman, Barbara Streisand. I'm, 
you really understand women. So before we even get into the work, like, where does that come from? Did you have a good relationship with your mother? What? what, what why do you understand women so I well? I don't know. I have no idea. Because but you I do. Have, I did have a good re relationship with my mother. Mm -hmm. I think I'm a little perverse sometimes. And <laughs> I think it irritates me that men think they're the big cheese, you know. Mm -hmm. I get kind of irritated with it. Because you have a natural respect and... I like women. ...appreciation of women. Yeah, that's very clear. Yeah. I, I am very grateful for that. Okay, so so you knew Cloris was going to... Well, I, I just said to her, I said to her, you could win an Oscar for this. So when we were shooting, mm -hmm. we'd do a scene and she'd say, Oscar? <laughs> and so that's why when she did that last scene, mm -hmm. I said, you just won the Oscar. And she, that is the scene that... Got her the Oscar. Did she? She's did when? Great. When she still says she could have done it better. So, the, so and I, she might have made a crack about that I the night that did. we I'm watched sure she it. Did. So, so, so as soon as she did it, you knew that. Like I said, that's it. She said I can do it better. I said no, you can't. Because it was the first time she was shaking. Wow. She was just shaking because it was the first time she was doing it for me. Wow. She, I'm sure she practiced. Mm -hmm. it. So I wouldn't be still be in my bathroom with all that thing she did. It was just fucking brilliant. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, that's it. We just did one take. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so from there you go to comedy? Do you go to to What's Up Doc from there? Is that the next thing? Yeah, that was weird. How did that happen? Well, it's just a piece of strange luck. What happened was we finished Picture Show. And we we had a work print. We didn't have a, a, a fine print. We just had a work print. Mm -hmm. and, um, the word was sort of the word was getting out that it was a good picture. Nobody'd seen it. And um, did you know that you were winning an Oscar? Did you know that you were doing an Academy Award? I, did, I didn't think about it that way. It's mm -hmm. funny. I said to Ben Johnson he'd win an Oscar mm -hmm. too. He turned it down, you know, four times the picture. Why? Too many words, Pete. <laughs> too many words. And I said that to Ford. I said. Mm -hmm. Ben, he was Ford, you know, and sort of discovered Ben Johnson. And I said to the old man, I said, uh, I got a really good part for Ben. And he, he says there's too many words. He said, oh, he always says that. When we were doing Yellow Ribbon, he'd come in and he'd say to the script, any words for me today? And if she said yes, he'd go off and sulk. And if she said no, he'd just have to ride a horse, he'd be happy. Where is old Ben? I said, he's in Tucson. Let me call him for you. So he called him for me, and then Ben called, and he calls me back, he says, he'll do it. I said, what the hell do you want to do, Ben, be Duke sidekick your whole life? <laughs> Peter's got a good part for you, you should do it. And um, then Ben calls me, uh, Mr. Ben Johnson on the phone, Peter. Hello, Ben? You put the old man on me. <laughs> Anyway, he finally agreed to do it after mm -hmm. much stress. How did, how did it did it how did it change how did it change you for you having that Oscar experience? Well, it didn't the year, Oscar was you know a year later. Right. But that was a very difficult picture because I fell in love with Sybil. Mm -hmm. She fell in love with me. Mm -hmm. My father died. Mm -hmm. while we were shooting. Mm -hmm. It was very complicated. And mm -hmm. Polly, my first wife, was on the picture as a production designer. Oy. It was, it was, yeah. 
it was quite something. Mm -hmm. So uh, we all were one person when we went to Texas, and when we came back, we were somebody else. Mm. And uh, the picture, so what happened was the word was getting out that it was a good picture, and nobody had seen it. Mm -hmm. So Sue Mangers, mm -hmm. who was my agent at the time, mm -hmm. no, no, sorry, Jeff Berg, who was also an agent of mm -hmm. mine, uh, he was a junior agent at the mm -hmm. time, called me or came in to see me. He says, Steve McQueen's looking for a director for a picture called The, Getaw the Getaway. I want, him to show, I want him to see the last picture show. I said, uh, well, I'll ask Bert. So I asked Bert Schneider, Bert says, well, Peter, I mean, you know, my brother, who was the head of Columbia, hadn't seen it yet. <laughs> he said, you want McQueen? I said, well, it's for a job, Bert. He said, all right, all right. So the Steve came in and ran it came out, walked into my office, the door was open, and he said, you're a filmmaker, man. You're a filmmaker. I'm just an actor. You're a filmmaker. Uh, he only made one mistake. Said, what was that? You never should have cut away from that diving board. <laughs> he wanted to see a civil script. Yeah, anyway. well, who didn't? Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so he, they hired me to do the getaway. Mm -hmm. And I started to work with Walter Hill, who was mm -hmm. a screenwriter mm -hmm. at the time. And then the word got out that I was doing this thing with McQueen. So this all happened very quickly. Mm -hmm. So then um, Sue calls me and she says... And she's Barbara Streisand's manager, Well, she's she? Barbara Streisand's junior agent. David oh, okay. Benjamin's the senior agent. Mm -hmm. She calls me and she says, uh, Warner Brothers is doing a picture with Barbara. It's called A Glimpse of Tiger and I think you could get the job. Why don't you read it? But you need to... You need to let Callie, John Callie, who's the head of the studio, and Barbara see the picture. Mm -hmm. So I said to Bert, Streisand wants to see the picture. He said, Jesus Christ, Bert. <laughs> he said, you know, I said, well, it's for a job, Bert. He said, my brother hasn't even seen it. I can't have the head of Warner Brothers see it before the head of Columbia. It's a Columbia picture. So, so, um, so he said, Callie can only see eight reels five reels or whatever it was, and he has to leave. Mm -hmm. So they came over, and um, he came out after six reels or whatever, and he said, Barbara's in there crying. He said, it's a great picture, Peter. I really feel ridiculous I have to leave. But, and then she came out, and she'd obviously been crying. And she said, I want to do a drama with you. She said, drama. <laughs> and I said, well, I don't want to do a drama. I want to do a comedy. She said, well, I just did a comedy. I want to do a drama. I said, well. Did you read the script? I said, yeah, I don't like it. You don't like the script? I said, no. So, it was sort of impasse, but I, I liked her. We spent an hour talking by her car, and everybody's guys were watching me from the building and sending send me a note. He said, you're going to make out with her? <laughs> anyway, um, so I read the script, and I said, I didn't like the script. And about a week or two later, John Kelly calls me and says, come into my office. So I go into the office. He says, look, Barbara really wants to work with you. Mm -hmm. I said, but John, I don't like the script. He said, well, let me ask you a question. If you had to do a picture with Barbara Streisand, what would you do? So I said, well, uh, I don't know, screwball comedy, you know, something like bringing a baby, screwy dame, stuffy professor, she fucks him up and then everything goes, turns out all right. Mm -hmm. 
Fine. He says, do that. Who would you like to write it? I said, well, Benton and Newman, who wrote Bonnie and Clyde, were, were friends of mine from Esquire. I worked with them at Esquire. Maybe they could do it. He says, fine. We just did a picture with them to hire them. Can I produce it? He said, yeah. So I left this office producing and directing Streisand's next picture, which nobody knew what it was. And wait, isn't Buck Henry in this equation somewhere? Yeah, later. Okay. But we, we, Benton and Newman only had three weeks because they had to start another project. So I said, well, if Ben Hecht and Howard Hawks can write Scarface in 11 days, we can do this in three weeks. Oh, my gosh. Which we did. We, uh -huh. did, we did a draft. It wasn't great, mm -hmm. but it was okay. And then I did a polish. And then we had to have Barbara. And by now, Ryan had come into the picture. Mm -hmm. Ryan O'Neill had come into the picture because Sue said, you want, Barbara would like you to consider Ryan O'Neill. And I said, I don't want to see you. Ryan O'Neill. Is this like Peyton, post Peyton Place or something? Post Love, Love Story. Love Story. Oh. It was still yeah. playing okay. in theaters. Okay. She says, go see Love Story. Mm. I hated Love Story. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I met with Ryan and I liked him personally. I thought he was mm -hmm. cute and funny. And he liked what I was going to do with him. was make him a square professor mm -hmm. and so on. So that was fine. But they had to approve the script. Mm -hmm. Well, I didn't think the script was good enough. So I, being a, having been an actor, I thought, well, if I if I read it with them, they will be more interested in what my my thinking, what I think of them, than mm -hmm. they are in what they think of the script, because they want to look good to me. Mm -hmm. So I said, let's all read it together, and it worked. Wow. Because they said, fine, we'll do it. The picture wasn't the script wasn't right, but they said, fine, we'll do the picture. So then Callie calls me. She says, do you think the script needs work? I said, yeah. Mm -hmm. He says, how about Buck Henry? I said, great. Oh. So then I met with Buck, mm -hmm. and Buck was very funny. We met at Musso and Frank's, and he says, he, he says, you're going to hate me, but I think it's not complicated enough. I said, do you think we need another suitcase? Because we had three suitcases. <laughs> he said, do you think we need a fourth suitcase? He said, yeah. So I said, okay, well, at that point, the Pentagon Papers were all in the news because whatever his name is had stolen the Pentagon Papers. So I said, let's make it the Pentagon Papers. We even cast an actor who looked like well, I can't think of his name now. Um, Mike Murphy could anyway. Anyway, so that was so. Then he did the script, mm -hmm. and and we pretty much shot Buck's draft. Mm -hmm. I made some just slight changes. I cut the first five or six pages, but basically we 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 did the uh, pretty much Buck's version, mm -hmm. which was a good mixture of me and Ben and Newman and Buck. Buck was fun to work with, and then we did that picture, seventy one days. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Now, what's interesting is that I had turned down The Godfather. Oh, my gosh. Because I, I, I said, they said, we, we just bought a book, Evans and Bart, Peter Bart, said, uh, we just bought a book called, uh, they didn't tell me the name, we just bought a book by Mario Puzo, we don't know if you'd like me to direct it or read a book. I said, what's it about? He said, the mafia. I said, I'm not interested in the mafia. That was the end of that. Fast forward a few years to the no, Sopranos no, yeah, you. Right, right, <laughs> exactly. So I, now at the end of the year, mm -hmm. at the, as when, when everything was tallied up for 1972, mm -hmm. the highest grossing picture was The Godfather. Second highest grossing picture was Poseidon Adventure. Third was What's Up Doc. Wow. Made on a dare. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So I did all right. You did all right. You did all right. Okay, so, so... After, so is Paper Moon after that? Yeah. And so you're working with Ryan again. Yeah. How did, so what was that? What, what, 
How did that happen? Well, that was interesting. They came to me, Paramount came to me, uh, and and um, they bought they had bought Targets, Times, and Picture Show for Columbia, and then Warner Brothers. They came to me with a, I, don't, I think it was a script, uh, called Addie Prey, based on a book called Addie Prey by Joe Brown, what his name was. And I didn't even read it. I said, I, I'm, I'm busy. I'm doing a picture for Warner Brothers. We're doing a Western. Larry McMurtry, who wrote The Last Picture Show, is writing a Western with me. I had had this idea mm -hmm. to do a Western. I said, I met with Larry. I said, I want John Wayne in it, Jimmy Stewart, Hank Fonda, Sybil, the Clancy Brothers, Ben Johnson, Cloris Leachman, and Ellen Burstyn, and Ryan O'Neill. And then we talked out the script and the idea and so on, and he started to write. He'd send pages, and I'd rewrite it mm -hmm. and send it back. And he wrote 300 pages, and I cut it down to 150, 140. And so I said, I can't do this, Addie Prey, because I'm, I'm, I'm going to do this Western, which was the moment it was called um, Streets of Laredo. Mm -hmm. And um, we, got, we got a pretty, what I thought was a pretty good draft, and Duke turned it down. Mm. I said, why? Well, it's kind of an end of the West Western, Pete. And I'm not ready to hang up the spurs yet. Oh. I, I said, well, you don't die in it, Duke. He said, no, but everybody else does. <laughs> so, I, and Jimmy Seward I offered it to, I showed, I showed it to Jimmy at the same time as Duke and Fonda. Fonda just said, yeah, I love it. Mm -hmm. And Jimmy said, yeah, well, why do I let the horses go? God, everybody you do, you do perfectly. <laughs> and I said, I said, well, we'll, we'll, we'll shore that up. We'll make that clearer. Mm -hmm. Well, all right. Then when Duke turned it down, mm -hmm. I, I said to Jimmy, I, Jimmy found out, he said, well, if Duke's not going to do it, I'm just, uh, why do I let the horses go? <laughs> so that was the end of that. So I said to Larry, I don't want to do it with anybody else but the actors we had in mind. I, said, mm. I don't want to do it with Kirk Douglas or Burt Lancaster. I just, I'm not going to do it. Mm. So why don't you write it as a novel? Because the stuff just poured out of him. Mm -hmm. He'd never written anything about the Old West, mm. but he knew it like mm. in his bones. Mm -hmm. Write it as a novel. Well, this is 13 years later he did. It was called Lonesome Dove and he won the Pulitzer Prize. Oh my gosh. Wow. Started as a script for me. Wow. Amazing. So that so I was free. Mm -hmm. So I went. I guess somebody told Paramount I was free, or they found out, and they said, "Well, we've got John Houston and Paul Newman and his daughter to do Addie Prey, but we prefer you to do it. Will you do it now that you're not doing the western?" And I said, "Well, let me read it." So I read the script. I said, "It's not a very good script." And um, then I read the book mm -hmm. quickly. It wasn't a fat book. And there were some things in the book that I liked that weren't in the script, a mm -hmm. lot that I liked a lot, mm -hmm. that weren't like the whole Madeline Kahn thing. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I, I said, okay, I'll, I'll do it. But we got to do, do, do a rewrite. They said, whatever you want. And I said, oh, I forgot to tell you something. When Larry was, and I were writing the Western, at one point Larry called me and he said, 
I can't write for Ryan O'Neill. I had nothing to write for him. I'm not going to write for him. I said, all right. But I had already told Ryan he was going to be in it. So he was very disappointed when I said he can't be in it. But then the whole thing fell apart. Mm -hmm. So now I was thinking about this Addie Prey, and I, and I was talking to Polly. Who mm -hmm. we, we, was, we, were, we were separated. We weren't divorced yet, but we were separated. I was living with Sybil. Mm -hmm. And, and you're still working? Yeah, Polly worked on What's Up Doc, and we got her in the union that way. And we were still friendly, mm -hmm. sort of. Mm -hmm. um, so on Paper Moon, I said to her, okay, read this, will you, and tell me why I should do this. And she read it, and she said, well, you know, you have two daughters. So this is a, mainly the kid. He said, she said, I have an idea who could play the kid, who? She said, Tatum O'Neill. I said, really? Oh, yeah, I'd met her. And I remember she had a good voice. Mm -hmm. I guess you could. And then I said, and then we can use Ryan. He, I'd cheer him up. He won't be so angry with me anymore. And that's how it happened. Wow. So I told Ryan, I said, I got a picture for you. But uh, I'm going to do it with Tatum, maybe. Uh, I'm going to come down to the, he lived in Malibu. I'm going to come down and see her next, next couple of days. Mm -hmm. But don't say anything to her. Of course, I knew he would. <laughs> so I get there. And I'm C. Tatum, hi. And um, we're talking, and Ryan says, you know, you're looking pretty good, but you, you ought to come down to the beach here and run on the beach and, you know, work out. And Tatum says, oh, Dad, he's not the type with that voice. <laughs> I looked at him, I said, why do you say that, Tatum? Well, you're always wear your shirt and don't take off your shoes. Now, how she knew that, I don't know. It's just, it's just, I said, I said, she, I turned around and said, she'll do. And that's how she got the part. Wow. Did she know she was auditioning? Well, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, that's an interesting story. I didn't like the title, Addie Prey. I, mm -hmm. sound, I sound like a snake or something. That's the girl's name. It, it, it is a terrible title, by terrible the way. Title. Yeah, that so, would not have worked. So every time I do a period picture, mm -hmm. I'm, every time a mm -hmm. picture show I had done mm -hmm. this, I, I looked to see what, what songs were popular at that period. Mm -hmm. oh. and, and I found a song from 1934 or 35 called It's Only a it's Paper only Moon. A paper moon. That's it. Yeah. So I said, Paper Moon, that's a good title. Mm -hmm. So, and the lyrics sort of fit the story. Mm -hmm. So I said to Frankie Blance, who's the head of Paramount at the time, uh, Bob, I think, was doing something else. And I told him I want to call it Paper Moon. He says, why? I said, well, it's a good title. And he says, no. What do you mean you don't think so? It's not a good title? No. Addie Prey was a big bestseller. I said, how many copies did it sell? 100,000. I said, oh, well, that's great. If we have 100,000 people see the picture, we're really good. <laughs> he said, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> Let's not argue about it now. I don't want this to be our first argument. Just We'll worry about this later. It's just Addie Prey. Mm -hmm. So I called Orson Welles, who by this time I was friendly with him. Mm -hmm. I'd met him in 68, mm -hmm. and we became friendly. And did you meet him through Henry, or did Henry meet him through you? Well, Henry him? met him through me. Uh -huh. I, got him, I got Orson to be in Henry's first picture. Mm -hmm. um, so I called Orson, who was in Rome, mm -hmm. and I said, Orson, he could hardly hear me. I could hardly hear him. It was a very bad connection. I said, can you hear me? He said, barely. I said, what do you want? I'm cutting. I said, um, what do you think of this title? Paper Moon. 
there was a short pause. And he said, that title is so good, you don't even need to make the picture. Just release the title. <laughs> that's so funny. So I called Alvin Sargent, who was the writer on this thing. Mm -hmm. And I said, Alvin, you know, we've already got a carnival scene in the, in the, in the script. He said, yeah. I said, you remember those half moons or quarter moons that you'd sit in and you'd have your picture taken? He said, yeah. I said, put a scene in there where Tatum, where Addie goes and sits in the, in the moon. Something to do with that movie. He mm -hmm. said, why? What for? I said, so we can call the fucking thing Paper Moon. <laughs> and they won't say why. And then it turned out to be a nice scene. Beautiful. And we paid it off at the end when mm -hmm. he opens it up at the end of the picture. Anyway. So we did Paper Moon. That was a very difficult project because Polly and I did not get along on that one. Mm. And that was the last time we worked together. But the picture was, the uh, picture turned out well. It certainly did. Okay, so now you're putting statues on your mantle all over the place. And um, I know there was some in between, but the next big one, so then you have masks. And now that you're going to work with... That was a long time later. That was a long time later. Right, okay, so... There was a few... There was a few Things under the dam by then. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so wow. Um, that's the first part of my conversation with Peter Bogdanovich because there's twice more. Um, Peter was willing to talk, and Peter's willing to talk. I'm willing to listen, and I hope you're interested in listening too because the second half is just as compelling if not more so than the first wow i'm 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 i have a takeaway in mind but i i'm gonna save it until we're at the end of the whole thing so come back next week and we'll have the second part of my conversation with peter bogdanovich and um wow 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 i i wish we would have uh i kind of talked stacy out of bringing in video equipment in a way I wish we would have had it because I think we just would have made a documentary that uh, cinema history, um, what a legacy, um, but it would have changed the conversation. Um, I want to say that Peter looked into my eyes that entire time. Um, we were eyeball to eyeball. It was, um, this is a memory I will cherish forever. Anyway, I'm really thrilled to be sharing it with you. And um, please do come back next week um, for the second installment of Peter Bogdanovich on The Road Taken. The Road Taken is a radio-free podcast here whenever you are. A new show every Tuesday. Available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, and on the corner of Hollywood and Vine where I'll be using a bullhorn. Well, you can also get links to all this and more at VickiAbelson.com. That's V-I-C-K-I-A-B-E-L-S-O-N. Please follow, subscribe, review, lather, rinse, repeat. Till next Tuesday. And mine and binge our archive while you're at it. It's rich with information, inspiration, and fun, damn it. Thanks for listening. And if you like to watch, keep your eyes peeled for our next Facebook Live.